0: Gentlemen, Welcome to episode 218 of the 1099. As always, I am your host, Joseph Noop, and I am so glad you're here with us. And I am so glad to have the one and only IGN Editor-in-Chief of Entertainment and the, I guess now, former uh, host of the best damn Game of Thrones podcast, Dragons on the Wall. Seriously, my favorite. I always tuned in. Uh, my good friend, Terry Schwartz. How you doing, Terry? What
1: an introduction. I didn't know you were going to lead with Dragons on the Wall, but I'm so humbled. Dude,
0: <laughs> I, I discovered Dragons on the Wall, I guess, in season five or six. Mm-hmm. It, you, you didn't start it when the show started, obviously. But...
1: No, I actually, I inherited it from yeah? uh, former IGN uh, loves uh, Eric Goldman and yes. Ralph Cornett, who'd been doing it for a while with, with Chris Carl, and then they left, and I was like, good, it's mine. It's yours. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but game of thrones yeah over rip maybe maybe we bring it back for the prequels i was going to say
0: like that that's being the editor in chief of ig entertainment essentially the, the hollywood side uh foregoing games leaving that up to the san francisco peeps uh p- a post game of thrones world has got to be a hell of a thing to consider uh that sweet seo money out the <laughs> out the door now uh but you know before we before we like arranged a lot of this I I, I tend to, I try to do some research about my guests, of course. And, uh, before arranging this, I was like, you're, you're an enigma to me. Like your career arc is basically an enigma. There was Terry at IGN and nothing before, like the big bang happened. And so I I saw, I I snuck on your LinkedIn, of course, and I saw you lived in Boston and worked there and you also worked for MTV at a time. Tell me where does Boston? Baby Terry start and become EIC Terry.
1: Sure. Well, uh, Baby Terry started in Massachusetts. Uh, I grew. I'm from Massachusetts. I grew up there. I went to college at Northeastern. I always loved writing. I always loved pop culture. And a friend's mom suggested, "Hey, what about journalism? This is a good way to kind of meet these two together." And so I went to Northeastern as a journalism major and ended up being uh, um, dual majoring in cinema studies and uh like many things uh, in my career I got impatient with waiting around to graduate and decided to yeah. try to figure out what can yeah. I do uh, while I'm here to kind of get me on my path get started with the things that I'm really excited about um and I did a, a number of things one of the best uh, classes I had was actually my uh, j1 honors class like freshman <laughs> year and we had to write a big feature and a big feature story that was like our final assignment um and if we Did it well and didn't completely botch it. Our professor was like, Hey, you wrote an article, you should go pitch this Mm -hmm. somewhere. And so I had written it about Anime Boston uh, and that was kind of the first thing where I realized I was like, eh, hard news, not for me. Sports, not for me. Politics, not for me. Oh, I can just write about the things that I like mm-hmm. and did this whole big um, feature story that I was really proud of and then uh, go-getter that I am was like, oh, I'll send this into the Boston Globe tips line. Why not? It's an article. What's the worst they can yeah. say? Uh, which is like <laughs> the best uh, catchphrase for my life. My, my <laughs> career is what's, what's the worst they can say. Um, so ended up actually catching the attention of a guy who worked there he let me start um freelancing for him he just kind of he he was a uh, worked on the metro desk but um you know let me kind of freelance for a site on the side uh, there's always that
0: one guy yeah. who's like oh you like Game of Thrones 2 or some, some nerd yeah. stuff. yeah. And
1: it was really, it allowed me to get my foot in the door a bit. Um, you know, early on, I actually, uh, through that, he was able to pitch the piece that I had written, uh, the the feature story from my freshman year. And it ended up uh, on the front page of the calendar section of the Boston Globe. He nice. kind of helped me co-write it, which was awesome. And then that year, I was I was 18, but we went out to cover E3 and Comic-Con for the Boston Globe. And that was like my first time getting a sense of this bigger world out Your there world, yeah um fast forwarding a bit again like what's the worst people can say i had uh, been writing for this site for about a year and had a story where i was like hey like i could get paid for this like i could get uh this in a, a pop culture blog that i follow mm-hmm. and i just cold called adam rosenberg now at mashable yep. but he was the editor of the mtv movies blog at the time and i called him up and I was like hi uh, I have a story I think you'd want it and he we've talked about it since because uh, we're friends and he's like no one does that no one does like that. No, no one just picks up the phone and cold calls you and pitches." he was like oh okay like whatever it's like your
0: parents saying you know go knock on some doors and ask for a job yeah, right and he was like but, oh my god
1: but again it was like what, what's the worst what's the worst yeah and so, um, yeah, I, w- I was 19 and I ended up freelancing for MTV News, just like pitching them blog stories and stuff in the early ages of kind of that digital revolution of the Internet um, it, for the length of my college career was the best uh part-time job (laughs) I could have during college because I could do it from classes Uh, but it really gave me a lot of opportunities that kind of shaped the the career I would have to come post-graduation I co-hosted live streams with Josh Horowitz for like Twilight and Harry Potter carpets when Mm -hmm. they just needed someone else to kind of bounce off Uh, conversations about I covered Comic-Con with them Uh, I went through multiple different iterations of like trying to understand as a freelancer what my editor was looking for as they were trying to figure out what are the types of blog stories that kind of hit well mm-hmm. on Google search um, and ended up graduating and moving out to LA to pursue more freelance writing in a full-time capacity because I was kind of at the point that I was able to write for a lot of different outlets. It was it
0: as scary for you as it is for me?
1: <laughs> you know, it, it, it wasn't in the sense that um, I had... I've been so convinced when I graduated, I have a job at MTV and there was a position that opened and I didn't end up getting it. And I was like, you know what? I've been doing this in this capacity for so long. I had a really strict like self-control regimen of how I would write Mm -hmm. because again, I was doing it in class. Like I needed to figure out how can I balance this with normal life. Mm -hmm. And I had made enough connections by that point that it's like, you know, what I keep finding is that. These sites that I want to write for, like MTV and and Entertainment Weekly and, you know, IFC, one of my friends ended up being an editor there, they need stringers in LA mm-hmm. and because they're based in New York. And so my gamble was, I'm going to move out to LA. It helped that I started dating a guy who I now married who lived in California. Good old
0: Mike.
1: <laughs> good I, old, I owe Mike a lot, yeah. <laughs> good old Mike Rougeau. Um and we met in college and and kind of uh, he was in the video game side I was on the entertainment side um, and and so I knew like I had friends and stuff out here but my gamble was you know I think I'll be able to find freelance work going and covering junkets and writing this stuff up because people want to save money <laughs> sending a, a writer out yeah. here and that totally paid off and so I got a lot of opportunity at a bunch of different types of sites learning how to change my voice to match um, you know what what various outlets need as I'm sure you've experienced the same learning how to pitch an a variety of different ways and kind of reverse engineering what people were looking for and trying to understand kind of how, like, why they were saying yes to certain things and mm. no to other things. Um before I was at IGN, my first full-time job was, uh, after freelancing for several years, was a, a site called Zap2it that no longer exists anymore. Um, but it was TV-focused, but also covered pop culture and movies. It kind of went back and forth between whether it was a TV-only site uh, or a, a general pop culture site. Um, but there I went from kind of similar trajectory at IGN, went from being just a staff writer starting off to being, they called it associate editor, but basically managing editor of the site where I was managing a team of freelancers. And staff, and determining like, you know, what SEO trends we were following, traffic goals, um, the how to work back to, for, to like how do we hit our goals while still covering things that our audience is passionate about, and with limited resources, honing in on uh, what those topics are, which definitely has been a big part of working at a site like IGN, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of entertainment to cover. And I know you want to talk Almost a bit about too streaming. Much, yes. There's like literally more content that you could possibly consume yeah. in your life released every year now <laughs> that, um, it's like, how do you figure out what, what works? And so that kind of got me to the, uh, the present with IGN where, you know, the Zap to it stuff didn't completely overlap with my interests. And selfishly, I've worked enough places that I kind of figured out, I'm like, what's the Terry brand? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Roth Cornett, who used to be here, left IGN and gosh, when she, when she left... And I heard that she was leaving and, like, I chatted with her a little bit about it. I did something I realized no one ever does, which was I reached out to every single person I knew who had any kind of connection to IGN. And I was like, hey, I don't mean to ask you to put your neck out there for me, but if you think I would be as good at this job as I think I would be – can you put in a good word? And what happened was like 20 people reached out to various people <laughs> at IGN to be like, hey, you should hire Terry. She's great. So by the time I got to my final interview, uh, our, our former publisher and EIC were like, so you know a lot of people who work here. Um, but that really helped me get my foot in the door. And You're the, the reason rest- my
0: inbox is full yeah. right
1: now. Yeah. <laughs> the, and the rest is history. So
0: That's cool. And I mean... It is it is funny to hear you relay through all that because it mirrors the my journey and a lot of uh, journey of other freelancers and and fresher writers in this industry I think of uh, just really getting sick of waiting around for something to happen and the, the yeah better to ask forgiveness I suppose in some cases not at all but uh, then to ask permission and. I, I tell this story before on the podcast. Uh, so perhaps the, the listeners are tired of it, but I started a geek culture outlet at college by BSU for ball state. And that was basically a case of like uh, the newspaper, the magazine, the TV show and the radio program are great. And I worked with pretty much all of them at some point, but they weren't facilitating what I wanted to work on and what I knew other students around me wanted to. So basically me and a, a peer of mine, Went from two people, just the two of us, to like a staff of 15 to 20 uh, in about a year and a half. And that like really solidified, hey, you got to go out there and make shit happen.
1: I think that's the thing that, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how do I work at IGN? Sure. Uh, you know, I'm just starting out. I don't have any, you know, printed experience. How do I work at IGN? I was
0: saving that for last, but, you know, I like, suppose let's let's dive into that a little bit because we're, we're kind of on the topic of career arcs here. Yeah. Yeah. We're-
1: and, you know, everyone has their own different arc. But the the thing that I say to most people who ask me that, especially when they're just starting out, is I'm like, well, you don't start working at IGN. No. If that is your dream end goal, then... That's not where you want to start. You want to come to a site, the most compelling, especially if it is like a final dream job, right? You want mm-hmm. to have kind of your resume and at least for me, like you want to be ready to give this your best and the best version of you and so what I usually tell people is start off writing somewhere even if it's your own blog but mm. like try to find someplace that'll pay you even five ten dollars yeah. a story so you're getting paid for it because it's never great to like give your work for free somewhere it's not a good precedent to set um, I know it's hard sometimes there's to a couple of that. different
0: camps of belief and I as I've gotten older and worked more and more here I'm kind of like yeah, don't, don't do anything for free. It's just not worth it. Unless it's like a blog and you are super green, you know, right. maybe, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah. To, to give you some structure, but like you, as I tried to kind of convey, like you learn so much through those steps to get you to mm-hmm. that better job and better job and better job. Like make those mistakes you inevitably make when you're green at a smaller site and learn from them and then grow to be the best version of you. And you'll work your way up. Like what, 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 I'll look at for someone who's coming in to work at IGN to be, you know, even if they're a like associate editor, which is kind of our lowest uh, title on the the editorial side, is someone who does have experience at an outlet, probably that I've heard about. Mm-hmm. We want to give a wealth of candidates uh, a chance because there is going to be that person who just hasn't had that chance given to them yet. But it really, really helps to have proven, especially on the entertainment side, that you've interviewed a, a celebrity, you know, in subcapacity, that you've written uh, a review and it's not riddled with titles typos Mm -hmm. you know that that has like a clear thesis there that you've written features and there seems to be some kind of logic behind how you've chosen what the topic is going to be and how you've formatted it and how you've approached it because we are a you know mainstream outlet and and we want to take a chance on new people but we also don't want to take someone who's completely green out Mm -hmm. of college who doesn't have any of that fine-tuning um you know we we want to help you kind of get through that door in other ways like through freelancing and, and other um, capacities. But so my advice is always like, get that experience somewhere and work up to the the um, dream job that you have, but also like, what's the worst that can happen if you do pitch yourself too early, you know? Exactly. No, you don't get the job and that's fine. And you can bounce back and come back later, but maybe someone will say, hey, that's a great pitch and take a chance.
0: And it, it will come from the strangest places usually, right? Like I'm, sur- I'm sure that when you were in college, you never anticipated writing for like the MTV or something uh and we we talk about Mike uh Mike Rougeau uh formerly he's now with GameSpot but he was formerly the gaming editor at Playboy before they kind of shuttered that division and that was literally my first paid games media job. I went to GDC 2015 uh it was shortly after they had some sort of call out like hey, pitches. I had a couple of ideas from GDC, pitched them about some sort of like Nordic horror game for a, like a one thousand word preview with like one little interview got paid three hundred dollars for it and like that spoiled me right out of the gate. I, I was think. gonna
1: say that's that that's, that's yeah, that print media money. Yeah, that's that <laughs> legacy dollar.
0: Yeah, uh, but but it, it's it's that was a window and that work spiraled into other things and even when Playboy kind of uh, sputtered out and they decided to go in a different direction and left Mike to the wind, I was sitting there thinking like okay I've written for Playboy. Like, right. what, what am I scared of now at this point? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's part of it is doing that research to figure out what outlets are looking for a writer mm-hmm. because there are. You know, it might not be the one outlet that you had your your heart set on that one time, but look around. There are a lot of calls to you know Lucy O'Brien on the game side has mm-hmm. one, and and Laura Prudom on my entertainment side have these pinned on their uh, Twitter pages, which is like we're always looking for pitches. This is what we're looking for. Here's Email us, yeah. Stop talking, yeah. <laughs> and so and so, I think that like those opportunities are out there. You just need to try, and you also need to assume that if if this editor has this pinned and is getting. Even say 20 pitches a day, what is going to be the thing that makes yours stand out? And for me, it's you have an idea of a headline and you have a thesis to your piece Mm -hmm. um, because there's nothing for me that like, again, I'm I'm dealing with a lot of stuff every day. But if someone comes with like something really, uh, you know, not not even like partially formed just like I have a gem of an idea and you know doesn't have a pitch word counter format or anything I'm like I have a lot of things to do in the day and like either come back to me with this or I just don't think that you're there enough in conceptualizing Mm -hmm. it for me to give this a shot
0: Mm -hmm. and time time is money I suppose is the the essence of that is yeah take your shot but make sure it's a really well-formed one We talk about getting jobs, but I am also curious, too, before we dive into some more of the the themes of entertainment media here, uh, getting the editor-in-chief job, um, you were originally entertainment editor. Um, Who did you work under at that point? Chris Carl was the person who hired me. Yeah. And then at at what point does someone pop the idea of like, hey, you should lead this?
1: Um you know that's that's a question uh, for I think Pear and Steve Bucks yeah. <laughs> And like what what was the moment that they said Terry uh, has was what it takes to be the leader? They certainly, um, you know, I was I was definitely relatively green in the scheme of things, but uh, I think part of it was this kind of restless attitude I have where just kind of the lane I'm in isn't necessarily uh, the lane I'm always thinking about, mm-hmm. and I was something someone who early on again I, I had this experience uh, coming in to IGN of managing a team of thinking beyond just like, what are the assignments that I'm on? Even though I started as a position that was just kind of broad entertainment editor. And so, you know, learning kind of the ecosystem of IGN, I was trying to come up with ideas that were like connecting the dots between different departments. Like Snapchat was really big when I started. So how was I working? got her
0: start with Snapchat here. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so it was like, how am I thinking proactively of ideas, you know, that, Will understanding what works on Snapchat, understanding what I can bring to the Snapchat team to come up with ideas, understanding when I got an opportunity pitched to me, could this actually be something that wouldn't work on ign.com but would work on Snapchat instead? And I think it was, you know, that's a one off example, but it was that idea of kind of seeing how everything fit together that I think. the the leadership at IGN saw something in me that I didn't originally start as editor-in-chief. The title was editorial manager oh, okay. um, because it it was when Steve was the overall editor-in-chief mm. at IGN. Uh, but when he was no longer with the company, uh, I think, and they were looking at Tina Amini, my counterpart, who has a, a similar go get amazing origin story to get her oh, yeah. to, to where she was um, pair, had the idea of saying, okay, well, I have these, like, two really kind of powerhouse candidates that I think can complement each other and and moved us both into editor in chief capacities where we were kind of spearheading each, um, you know, vertical that that we uh, run from a content angle, but are working alongside each other in terms of the overall vision of IGN.
0: And I think it's worked out wonderfully so far. I mean, uh, there's been a healthy in the Slack channel. I mean, we're talking about like how much game content do we have? How much entertainment content do we have? And like, is one kind of pushing the other out? And I think there is a healthy respect on both sides for, Hey, IGN, it's really important that IGN has this like pretty clear 50, 50 identity. Um, Cause they're the, the modern geek culture media is such that like, I can play remedies control uh, this past week But then I really want to check out Mindhunter or uh, Twin Peaks because that's like there's similar thematic vibes that like someone who plays games a lot might get interested in this entertainment side of things.
1: And I think that that's been something that's been a real focus uh, for IGN is understanding who is our audience. And that kind of falls into different buckets, right? It's like who is the core IGN audience that has come to the site for 20 plus years and, and to like what do they want? who is the audience that we might be reaching through social platforms or uh, Google that is interested clearly in what IGN is doing and what are they looking for? Who is the audience we could be reaching? And trying to un- work backwards from understanding that audience desire and who that person is to build our content around them. And that's where you know your, your average gamer, so to speak, I don't think thinks of themselves as a gamer, but probably more of a pop culture enthusiast. Sure. And so to your point, someone who really likes control probably also watches Game of Thrones and probably cares about Star Wars and probably wants to know what that new great Amazon sci-fi series could be. And so that's kind of been the approach to the content that we're curating. And every once in a while, you'll see a gamble like something like the Downton Abbey movie, which we're totally reviewing, (laughs) but there is like, you know, our audience weirdly does care about our reviews of the crown. I I
0: gotta know how those, uh, those old aristocrats are are dealing with their latest drama.
1: But, but, you know, those, those are more of the like, Hey, Will try this things to see. Oh, you know, does and that's a audience... blessing
0: too to be able to try something
1: out. Right, yeah. it's it's like we know. You know, I see some comments being like, "Well, why do you care? Why do you post so much about Marvel and Star Wars and DC and Game of Thrones?" And it's like, well, that's what our audience really wants to know about. <laughs> I, I
0: get to work as homepage well right. weekend homepage editor basically, and I get to see those chart beat numbers and the the concurrent users on an article and yeah mcu and dc uh uh, choke everything (laughs) below
1: it yeah (laughs) but i think there's also a balance there too where it's there are are the people who do comment that and do say you know this is too much for me and then it's for us as a site to say all right you know we might be getting people who are coming in to to read this but we don't want to ruin the user experience Mm -hmm. for those who don't want to see this and so it's about you know working ourselves as content leaders but also within different avenues of our our organization like our product team to figure out are there better ways to kind of curate the homepage? if someone only wants to see game of thrones articles versus someone who doesn't ever want to see them how do we allow both people to be happy but still be able to come to our site and find what they want yeah.
0: and you know we're we're beginning to touch on the topic too but uh, let's dive into uh, yeah game like stuff like game of thrones is over now and uh Streaming media has become the de facto form of the way people find entertainment. Um, I subscribed to HBO for like three months uh, just for Game of Thrones. And then thankfully, Chernobyl was like, right, they, they knew what they were doing with Chernobyl. Uh, but I always wonder at a site like IGN, what must the planning, the day to day planning process look like after a major source of traffic like that ends is it merely a, a matter of yeah finding like okay let's shift a little more to star wars because like d23 is coming up or uh or should we just take a shot at something new like Mine hunter or um chernobyl or whatever is the big hot topic of the week
1: yeah. I mean, there's there's a couple of things I always say to my team. One is uh, what worked six months ago probably won't work today and no. probably won't work six months from now. So there is this constant evolution to try to keep an eye on trends that we're seeing in what's popping and what's not and, and being able to kind of constantly evolve the content we create and the types of shows that we go after. Um, we have a good gut sense now looking ahead of like what will be the big topics for us for the end, the rest of the year. Mm. But would those have been necessarily the topics that I would have guessed at this time last year? Maybe not streaming certainly uh, through a, like it completely changed how people consumed content. Yeah. And one thing that we were doing a lot of when I started is we were just doing a lot, a lot, a lot of weekly episode reviews Mm. we did them for pretty much every tangentially genre show on the air and it wasn't cumulating into as much traffic because of the shows that we were banking on Mm. we were covering things that when I was looking back I was like I know I know why we are trying this it's because it's on paper it seems like a an IGN show but there wasn't really any evidence that our audience cared about it and so one thing that I really tried to instill in my team is like Latch on to those couple of indicators early on that make it seem like this is a show that our audience will care about. Did we run a trailer that did super well? Is every news story we're publishing on this overperforming for us? Suddenly something like Venom that we might have been like, eh, this doesn't look super great. Like maybe the, the trailer didn't like capture our excitement or whatever. If our audience is excited about it, that's a triple A property for yeah. us, you know? And our audience matter, loves yeah. Venom. Like, yeah. that's that's a thing too. Like, that's – it's also separating something that, like, I personally may not – Uh, care about and I wish I wasn't using Venom as an example right now but but I personally uh oh god I'm like trying to pick pick something that's not going to make the internet uh despise me for for selecting it you know an example
0: of something that you're not into but that the the audience like
1: so Chernobyl we'll say Chernobyl I haven't uh worked up the courage to watch Chernobyl yet because uh, I know it's not a
0: happy summer show because I
1: know it's not something that I'm going to casually watch but I can identify oh hey this this show actually is of interest to our audience Mm. and let's change maybe a show we weren't considering covering uh, covering instead. And vice versa, if there's something that we think is going to be a big IGN show, but there's not really any evidence of it or a movie, mm-hmm. then let's scale back on it. And so, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily answer your question about Game of Thrones, and that's because there isn't going to be another no Game answer, of Thrones. Yeah. I mean, gosh, Never gonna be Game another. of Thrones and Endgame at the same time? It was like, that was literally the bulk of what we did for that period of time because yeah. there were no bigger points of passion for our audience that they wanted to sit there and discuss.
0: Even even in a newsroom, it felt a little bit like an event because like, I was helping a little bit of like IGN and a lot of Daily Dot.com. I would do a lot of Game of Thrones SEO for them. And just up till midnight being like, yo, what else can we wring out of this orange uh, for a bit? You know, the final season, let's go, let's go.
1: And I think the thing that, you know, some people might feel cynical about is it's like, oh, you're doing it just for clicks. But every click is a person. And if you're getting that much engagement around a topic, then mm-hmm. that means there are that many people who really do care to get the answer or, or whatever the article is promising or whatever the video is promising. Um, that being said, like we've noticed Everything we post around The Witcher is huge for us. Like, it is tracking to be a massive title for us. Mm -hmm. And and we were able to uh, find that super early on when Daniel Krupa, who used to work at IGN, just happened to ask Henry Cavill at a junket what he was playing. And he said, The Witcher, in a very knowing way, The Witcher 3, we ran an article saying... Could And we asked him, would you want to play him? And he gave a very coded answer. He clearly had already <laughs> yeah, signed to the yeah, project. Yeah. But that piece blew up. And we were like, wow, there's like no surprise. But maybe I wouldn't have expected that to be as big a topic as it is. So it really is trying to like stay clued into to our audience and what's exciting them. And I think another thing that, that people might not think about with IGN because we are a big website is we have a fairly limited staff all things considered like our entertainment team including myself is seven people eight people Yeah,
0: we were able to like say hello to pretty much everyone you're in the office in 30 seconds right. it's very very convenient <laughs> but yeah it kind of highlights like well those two guys are working over on video these folks over here are editorial and like but you think about the amount of stuff that IGN produces day to day
1: and so that's something that we really do need to kind of figure out we can't feasibly cover everything so how do we choose what we cover and I think there was a time uh, when we were trying to cover everything and not super effectively and now we try to keep being better about covering the things to the scale that our audience seems to care about them it it sounds you know very cut and dry a little bit how I'm describing it but like I want there to be space for us to say this show you haven't heard about is awesome mm-hmm. or this is something we're passionate about or here's like room kind of for that discovery content and also to say hey this is the thing you're the most passionate about and we'll make sure that we're covering it to the scale of your interest so that hopefully people can engage with all those different types of content because Sometimes we do write pieces that we're just super passionate about, and we're so excited about, and the presentation just causes a very small percentage of people to actually see it. And ultimately, like we want people to be able to engage with the content that we're making. And that was another thing I always tell my team is like work smarter, not harder. Yeah. Like don't double the amount of hours you're working in a day trying to cover everything. It is like how do we, how do you put yourself assign those resources in the right place to try to like maximize the things that you're passionate about in a way that people will engage with Mm
0: -hmm. i mean that's the danger too of uh sites with lesser reputations probably is uh, even if they have a large audience if they're throwing freelancers ten dollars to review like a whole episode of a show or something like that the quality of what you're going to get is it i would come to ign for the dragons on the wall podcast because i knew like terry and her co-hosts are always going to know what they're talking about and uh, gonna feel really it's gonna feel really good to watch that show um, and to hear them like analyze it episode to episode not knowing what's going to come next just like me uh, versus something much more cut and dry uh, it's just like hey here's what happened on this week's episode or like or like a dumb seo question of like is Tyrion Lannister dead, you know, kind of thing like that.
1: Right. And I think you do see a lot of sites that are smaller sites that need to completely rely on um, SEO to, yeah. to, you know, yeah. there's there's a certain ecosystem there. The more page views you get, the more ads that are served, the more that pays your bills to allow you to keep paying people to write for you, to allow you to keep creating this content. And I think um, people on, on the internet, at least in our... our um, you know, audience seem to understand a percentage of that. Obviously there's more that goes into that than possible. But, you know, there's this frustration when you do see smaller sites just like going after answering those questions. But it also is like the current this six month period way of kind of engaging Mm -hmm. with a, a bigger reader group. And then if you create content that people are excited about, maybe they keep coming back to your site regularly and not just because they stumbled upon you on Google.
0: What um we talk about like the diversity of content out there and the challenge of of covering it all, uh, but like on the industry side, it's funny we, we live down the street from Sony, uh, <laughs> and when the Spider Man uh, breakup with MCU uh, news was happening, I think I actually wrote the f- the very first article on that, and then it got you know covered ten billion more times after that. Uh, it was it was funny to live that close to the studio and be like. How oh dear. I'm shaking my fist for those who can't <laughs> see. Of course, uh, we talk about the diversity of content, but stu- Disney is basically gobbling things up, and it's—I'm not happy about it. But I completely understand why someone, why a studio like Sony would protect that property uh, to the death. And so it's—it's it's brought up the question of like, well, what is entertainment media, uh, a site like IGN or Gamespot, going to look like? As Disney acquires more and more and kind of holds the purse strings and holds the, the door open or closed, you know, yeah. what, what, what do you consider when you think about that? Well,
1: it was interesting because when that happened and <laughs> so the people in our newsroom and, and definitely our commenters were like, I don't understand who's the bad guy, Sony exactly. or Disney yes. in this situation. I was like, don't you get it? They both are. They, like they're they both, both suck, doing yeah. it. Well, I mean like it's just, it's all about business, right? Yep. And if you're looking for like a bad guy, it's like this whole idea of business. Like they aren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. Maybe maybe early on Kevin Feige was some of those early deals. He just wanted to get a Spider-Man movie made and Amy Pascal was like, eh, this seems like a good gamble to do this on. Yeah. But certainly now like they both have from a business sense, justifiable reasons of saying what they did and uh, clearly weren't able to make an agreement. And that's why it went the way they were. And uh, the consumer was not high of mind um, because both said, well, we think this will live just fine on without them in the consumer's eyes and we'll find a way to Mm. convince them. To The sense of Disney monopolizing everything. I mean, certainly the Fox acquisition – to me, was pretty surprising. At first, when that was announced, I, I didn't think that there was a world in which that happened. Uh, I think that as Netflix and these streaming sites uh, come in as these big industry disruptors, um, and again, there gets to be a point that there is literally too much content being made to yeah. consume, that it is harder and harder to make that one thing that pops mm-hmm. and breaks through. And as that happens, it's going to, you're going to see things, uh, first of all, I think potentially less creativity on the studio side as, uh, you see places like Apple and Netflix and, uh, I don't know that Disney's necessarily making a lot of gambles with Disney Plus, but like places like Netflix and Apple, um, allowing creators to come in with the promise that you can make this big, big budget show for all this money, yeah, with like with all this freedom um, that you aren't being afforded on the studio or network side, Uh, and I think that's going to make it harder and harder for um, studios to to have that more creative stuff get made, and as a result, like I think. If studios flounder, if they can't find those ten poles that will make their billions of dollars that, that keep them, you know, out of the red, there's a chance there are more studios that are gonna get acquired. There was a point in time where we thought there was a chance Netflix could try to acquire Paramount if they wanted to get a studio and Paramount was really floundering. Uh, Well, floundering is kind of a hard word, but you saw them um, kind of offloading these movies they didn't want to release theatrically to Netflix in the hopes of recouping some of that loss. Um, Disney in particular, because they have kind of formed this model of just kind of what i'm talking about yeah. i guess like doubling down on the things that work because the audience is clearly there you want three it.
0: star wars movie here's not yeah. yeah
1: um i i don't know that that model is sustainable because there's going to be a certain point where they've remade the lion king again like in a different it's actually with live animals this time oh yeah it's anime lion king um where yeah i just i don't know that uh that this current system will work forever but maybe that's what they're future proofing with fox right that they're trying to acquire an avatar or whatever i think that the fear of that of having any one company own too many things is especially in a, a creative industry like hollywood is that you lose the originality. Like yeah. you, we were talking a bit uh, about Joker, a film I've seen, a film I love.
0: Absolutely. I, I remember being there, I think the day it was supposed to get like slotted on the homepage. And I'm just like, okay, let me go, let me go get the, uh, the deck image, the big rectangle that, you know, puts it right there at the top of the page. Oh my God, a 10 out of 10. 10-
1: <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, that that movie has so much, uh, you know, it's as much a, a Scorsese movie as it is a DC movie. Yeah. Like, it has so much that it owes to films like Taxi Driver and uh, King of Comedy and even, you know, there's some, like, natural-born killers kind of in there where – you look back and you're like, this movie got greenlit because it's a Joker movie. Would a film like Taxi Driver be greenlit nowadays? Or yeah. would it um, be too much of a gamble because there's not a built-in audience? Or would it
0: be like maybe billed as like, oh, this is artsy. Uh, this this will play well at Cannes and right. Venice Film Festival. This will be good for Netflix. Which, which or, Joker did. But like, yeah. would this be good for like the broad market kind right. of thing?
1: Yeah. And so I think that's, that's my biggest fear is like kind of uh, the this whole idea of that monopoly of one studio but also losing that like diversity and creativity that you get from having a bunch of different studios with different personalities.
0: It's funny to think too about uh, with YouTube at least right uh, more and more things become d- dictated by algorithm right um, there are entire series of kids videos that are literally just dictated by what words can we put in the title to like algorithmize this? So like it gets enough views to justify the X thousands of dollars we put in it. Uh, or, you know, of course there's, there's countless channels that try to play off of trending topics and whatnot. And it, it is easy to, to imagine something like that happening on Netflix where uh, they just had, Netflix has made like big pushes into uh, uh, independently creating anime or at least acquiring a lot more of it, like Canon busters uh, And then they'll release a little mini documentary. Um, I think it was like, this is anime or something. And it got panned because it was kind of like an advertisement. It was an hour long advertisement for strictly Netflix anime. Mm. It's like, you didn't really teach me anything other than like what a TV guide magazine could tell me you know
1: right yeah Netflix is so interesting because you know you're talking about algorithms and and look back at the uh, content that they've doubled down on for originals and then think about what was in their library and they literally have years worth of uh, data analysis just waiting to be mined and they look at the things that are biggest for us and hey oh my god every Adam Sandler movie is one of our top performers let's spend all this money on creating Creating new Adam Sandler movies, you know, we see the success of Breaking Bad. So let's make a number of, you know, Ozark and like Mine and other similar like Breaking Bad kind of themed shows. Everyone streams Gilmore Girls. Let's do a Gilmore Girls this reunion show. Hot. Let's put this actor in everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 with and and so they clearly so many of the decisions they made are stemmed off what people are watching on their platform. Stranger Things is a huge hit for them. How many Stranger Things knockoff shows have they greenlit since then? Or acquired, like, you know, it's... And for Netflix, I think they must be at this point where... It's so expensive to maintain some of those licenses, especially as every other company is trying to make their own streaming service. Disney is taking back their yeah. library and, you know, Warner Media is taking back Friends. How does Netflix survive without the library content? Well, they've created this whole ecosystem of new shows built around the types of things that you like, that they've made too many for you to actually watch yeah. in the time that they come out. So you will forever be on that platform and watching it.
0: It's kind of like, when does the movie pass moment happen? We're like, we're just lying about our income now. And, uh, uh, But I I don't don't think Netflix is in danger of that, at least not for years. But uh, it's easy to see startup Startup businesses are are a dime a dozen, right? Yeah,
1: it's interesting. But we're getting past the point of like – it just being a studio that makes X amount of right. money. Now yeah. you have Amazon that the income is the Amazon, Amazon yeah. you know? How much money do they make? How much money does Apple make that like... Bezos
0: could make a show with like one-tenth of a percent of his income. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And it's going to be more expensive. Like each yeah. episode is more expensive than the entire Game of Thrones run or something. Yeah. And so you see like these streaming services are saying, okay, well, we just need to dump a lot of money into so that our quality is better and better and better than a studio. And now it's better than Netflix. And now it's better than... Apple TV whatever comes next and it's gonna make it impossible for some of these studios to keep up like what you're talking about because you can get that quality on Your streaming service, but also, like, does Apple TV Plus have the show? Like, it's launching in two months. Does it have the show that's making you sign up? And how much is it spent on the shows that it has made? Hmm. So, you know, you see something like Disney Plus that came out the gate swinging, and they're like, oh, you like Marvel and Disney animated classics and Star Wars? Well, don't worry. We have all this stuff at launch. And Finally, all of the Marvel movies are going to intersect with the TV shows Mm -hmm. on this platform. So you have to watch them to understand. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess I'm getting Disney Plus, (laughs) you know, but like Apple doesn't have that. And how will Netflix sustain itself when it finally does have competitors of its ilk Mm. out there?
0: Uh, let's switch gears a little bit in the time we've got left, because I definitely don't want to keep you too long. Um, uh, we, I originally kind of pitched uh, coming onto the show uh, around Comic Con, which well after Comic Con, definitely not.
1: And then di- I went on vacation like then, a jerk for how, two whole weeks. Was
0: Paris good? Yes.
1: Paris was great. Barcelona was great. Barcelona, holy cow! Went on a Bell and Sebastian cruise. The best thing I've done in my life.
0: I um I, I was. Uh, lucky enough to join IGN during E3, which is of course much more gaming focused. Um, it is
1: our Super Bowl.
0: But uh, well, I, I I was working from home for Comic Con, and then uh, I <laughs> I got to go on vacation for D23 and left J- uh, poor Jesse Wade uh, to the Lions. Sorry, Jesse, but uh, <laughs>
1: she thrived. She did great. She
0: always does great. She's my hero. Uh, but let's start with what does it take to. For Comic-Con or something like D23, from the IGN Entertainment side, what does it take to really put on a show like that?
1: So Comic-Con and D23 are pretty different shows. D23 is probably more of a... Packs, PAX, I A guess. fan expo. Yeah, but, you know, maybe more comparable now in terms of the news it puts out to something like the Game Awards. Sure. So it's like if you mix PAX and the Game Awards for the news. Here's the, the list news... of
0: announcements. Yeah, we don't yeah, have to. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's definitely smaller in scale. Comic-Con is the entertainment equivalent of E3. It's not as big as E3, but we've really tried to, um, you know, shape how it has its own identity true to the convention. I'm saying this with a huge amount of bias because Comic-Con is my favorite show. I feel like every year the list of people who say that gets smaller and smaller (laughs) because it is like a beast of a show and very different than E3. But when I started IGN, we were taking the very successful E3 model of coverage uh, and just putting it on Comic-Con. And Comic-Con just isn't a news show in the way E3 is. And it's not something that, um, you know, you're live streaming panels and announcements and watching along with people and then getting the follow-up to it. To it, So much of Comic-Con is behind closed doors, is, uh, you know, the footage that they reveal and don't release wide. Or, H, or, yeah. Exactly. And so same with the interviews that we get out of it. They're very different types of interviews. If you're talking to... Um, You know, Hideo Kojima after the announcement of Death Stranding, then you want to know all the news there is about Death Stranding. And we're looking at what the biggest questions our audience are asking are Mm -hmm. and taking that to them. If, you know, the first Aquaman trailer gets released, chances are that. If we try to ask Jason Momoa all those big questions our our audience has, he's been so media trained to death. He's not going to give us anything no, that's like yeah. that newsy bit. And so for a lot of our interviews for many years, we were trying to get like, what's the newsy bit out of them, out of the talent. And we just like weren't striking that often. Every once in a while we, were, we would get something great, but like there wasn't that kind of hit in the same way. And so what we noticed is that when we were covering um, junkets, which are basically like Studio put on um, interview opportunities with celebrities around movies or TV releases where we go and we have a limited period of time, four minutes most times, oh by the way. God. You get four minutes, you come down, you, you do your bit. I, I always wonder
0: like- why, do, why do the interviewers uh, look like they're just blowing through questions and it's like,
1: because you have four minutes and that's like from the second you sit down. Like yeah. you say your name, it's already started. Yeah. So, so as a result of that, out of the, as a result out of that limited time, and again, knowing that we're probably not going to get that little scoop from the media-trained celebrity we're talking to, we try to come up with something more fun that felt like true to IGN. And this is an ever-evolving process that we're doing, but we had a lot of success with, with um, certain things. And so we took that whole approach, myself and um, my, uh, my video counterpart down in LA, for entertainment, Corrado Corrado. We basically like did a soft reboot of our Comic-Con approach for our live show, which is if you're seeing the cast of Aquaman, like, yes, I could grill them for questions that they maybe will awkwardly answer. Or we could come up with something fun to do with them. And like, really, we're trying to figure out for a show that celebrates fandom, how do we reach the fandom in that way from a live perspective and have a much more fun show? Uh, And then something we had a big success with this year is – for the Mar- Marvel Hall H panel, when we knew that they like they're going to announce Phase Phase Four, yeah. that's going to be the big thing here. We actually treated we'd never done this before, and it worked really well. So I think you're going to see more of this to come. Um, we treated it like uh, like a presidential election, where like the news was coming, and instead of like trying to do the follow up, we were the people who were like, "Okay, this is happening. We have a list. We're we're telling you." I don't you what's know if I want to compare
0: anything to a presidential election. <laughs>
1: but, you know, like we're okay. Maybe that's not that's not fair. But in terms but the, of the, the, newsroom, yeah, right? the newsroom, yeah, the newsroom approach to it where. it's like oh not only are we giving people at home access to celebrities they wouldn't have through our programming Mm -hmm. but in cases like this where this isn't a press conference being streamed live we can give people the news first because we have joe scrabbles embedded in the room filling out a google doc with everything that's being said and every announcement as it's happening and that's how we're kind of that machine
0: that that content machine during a like e3 i was right there doing like galleries and whatnot and i imagine during comic con or d23 it's it is 10 people in a room and everyone's got, like, one task, but it is the, like, craziest 15, 30 minutes of your life.
1: Well, the the big difference for Comic-Con compared to something like E3 where, again, everyone's consuming it is, you know, that ticket is the hottest ticket at San Diego Comic-Con. And we, if we, we ended up getting a couple people in, but if we only have Joe in there and he's the only person getting that news he needs to then be the person responsible for conveying everything that's happening back to a home team that's relying solely on his kind of relaying that. So that was, that was very interesting and different this year. And I think, you know, that's kind of talking about the live approach, but then it is finding like, what are the most newsy informative bits from the convention as a whole, knowing that something like Marvel is going to be the biggest, like how do we come up with a system where we can get that news to people first and get it out in a way, um, that's going to match their needs and desires. They might not need to know the highlights from like the Bob's burger, like live Q and a read, Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that they're like desperate for anything that we can give them around what phase four is going to be.
0: You, uh, we'll, we'll kind of end maybe on, uh, you mentioned getting guests in the studio and trying to make it a little more meaningful or at least, uh, worthwhile of the time than asking hard nosed questions that they'll just dance around. During Comic Con, I was able to like really digest a lot of like The Witcher uh, interviews that we did with Henry Cavill and the rest of the cast. There was um, uh, Star Trek Picard with Sir Patrick Stewart and a lot of others. Um, what is what was like your favorite example of an interview that? Uh, was able to, like, give some meaning and depth. You were able to, like, pry something actually pretty genuine out of it and didn't feel like, well, I could get these answers at Variety or right. Mashable, you know. So I'm
1: going to—this is going to sound totally humble braggy because I did a couple of these, um, but I, I claimed all the interviews myself that I was, like, most excited about the the shows that were there. <laughs> um, it's the final season of Arrow, and okay. we've, we've interviewed the cast of Arrow— uh, Countless times. Um, And what are they going to say about their final season, right, if I sit down and and grill them? So, uh, you know, beyond just whatever kind of canned thing that they are allowed to say that they'll probably give to other people. And so one thing that we were experimenting with this year was kind of like saying there are these big fandoms behind shows and how can we kind of empower them? So we put out to our audience, what are some of your favorite scenes from Arrow over the past you yeah seven seasons mm-hmm. leading into the eighth season and what I did with the cast that was there is we pulled out some of those fan favorite scenes and some that we thought were really iconic over the years and we had them re-watch the scene and kind of like reminisce on the journey that Arrow's gone on that that whole time and then we ended with them each doing a toast to the end of Arrow and so it did like they were kind of Stephen Amell was getting close to kind of crying at the end like it, it was pretty emotional um, and allowed you know us to kind of go down memory lane and have the audio be able to watch the cast watch these moments, Um, and it connected really well with the audience too. And so we there were things like that where um, it just offered something a little bit different. It felt true to the show, but it also was something that it felt like it wasn't the same content that you've done everywhere else. Um, An example from from a previous year was every time Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon come to our any stage that at this Rick point. and Morty
0: fandom man
1: every time they come uh, they will up until this year it, it changed a bit but they were just yell for Craig Harris Justin Roiland loved Craig Harris former <laughs> former like Game Boy editor Craig Harris and they would just be live on our stream and be like Craig Harris where is Craig Harris <laughs> this year they were shouting for Eric Goldman so Eric felt honored that they switched from Craig to him wow. big change um, but it was just this funny thing that they did that you know it kind of with Craig, it, it made its way to him, and he acknowledged it. And so, the year that that I kind of reached its peak, um, I brought them selections of Craig Harris IGN reviews and had them read. Had Justin read it as Rick and Morty oh my because he does voices for both. And that was so. It was like Rick and Morty read IGN yeah. reviews, and and you got that. Like we talked about the show a bit at the end too. But again, like what I think people don't understand is, I could ask the best questions, and if they aren't allowed to say X, Y, or Z then they are going to talk about it. And those are probably going to be the same things that other people ask. So it's like, what can we do that kind of makes it pop, makes it feel special, makes you want to watch this over other things?
0: Proves that there is still like a lot of value in the human element of, of any uh, major media story, right? Like, yeah, let, let's, let's try genuinely see if we can get some emotion out of these people who are used to faking it, right? And uh, probably have a lot uh, riding on their backs after such long and illustrious careers. And I, I loved that with Picard stuff, the uh, Rick and Morty stuff is, is always hilarious, and um, I, can, I, I haven't been able to watch Arrow, uh, but I can only imagine like, what an experience that must have been. Um, we're coming out of summer, and uh, you're probably looking back on, like, okay, I survived another one. What does, um, well, real quick here, answer as quickly as you're like, what, what does the rest of the year look like for IGN Entertainment?
1: In terms of what?
0: In terms of just like what you guys are going to be working on and kind of looking towards the future.
1: So we are getting into fall movie season, which for our and TV season, which for our purposes just takes us through the end of the year. It kind of has been a little bit of a quiet stretch for um, movies and TV, but certainly like. Even though we've already reviewed Joker, that's definitely a huge title for us. Mm-hmm. Like the the interest around that review alone proved that. Um, the Witcher, as I mentioned, are some big ones. We have New York Comic Con, one last convention uh, before before the end, um, and then of course we have stuff like Star Wars up ahead, yeah. um, and 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 the launch of two major new streaming services with Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus, mm-hmm. and you know stuff like The Mandalorian coming in. Those will be – as much as we felt like we've kind of figured out how to cover Netflix and and Amazon and Hulu for us, it's going to be a whole process to figure out how how do we cover a Disney Plus show in the way that people are consuming it, which I think we talked about streaming a little bit earlier, but that was the biggest thing to retroact- retroact- retroactively figure out was – all right, when do we post a Netflix review? Yeah. Like, when do we post follow-up content for a Netflix title that everyone watches at a different time at a different pace? Um, and how long is too long to, to go past it? So that'll be a new uh, thing to figure out, but... I think those will be primarily the the main things and then figuring out whatever whatever new projects we can work on that we're really passionate about. We launched um something called When I Died on Game of Thrones that was like a special series that we did earlier this year that I'm super proud of because it was something that we we made in-house reaching out, booking talent, doing it outside of kind of like the, the typical studio availability. And, and we committed resources to making something special that you couldn't find anywhere else. And and I think it's going to be, in addition to the topics that we cover, like figuring out how to keep IGN better and better than, than it's been before um, by – continually focusing on what does our audience want? How do we give them a great user experience? How do we elevate the content that we're making and constantly push ourselves to, you know, yes, be answering the questions people might be searching for, but also give you great content that makes you want to come back and watch that thing on IGN again, because only IGN is giving it to you.
0: And IGN has given me a lot as a freelancer, and I'm always grateful to talk to you, uh, whether it's here in the studio or on Slack and get some good work out of you. I, uh, I owe you guys a lot and I owe you guys uh, a lot for my current plot in life. So thank you, and uh, best of luck with everything in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Terry Schwartz, IGN, Editor-in-Chief of Entertainment. And every Monday, you can find a new episode of The 1099 here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere. Thank you so much.